Welcome to A Voice for the Kids, Child USA's podcast series with newsmakers, experts, and survivors. Child USA is a nonprofit think tank that puts the best social science with the best legal analysis to end child abuse and neglect. Thanks for joining today. Dr. Paul Offit is one of the world's leading experts on vaccines. He is a doctor at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, one of the leading in the world. And uh, he is someone who has taken his message out to the general public. He's written so many good books on trying to explain to the public what medical challenges there are. uh, And one of them is on vaccines. So uh, I'm sure you've seen him on CNN. Uh, He has been widely quoted. Uh, He's been in numerous op-eds. So we're very lucky today to have uh, Dr. Poloff talk about, so what's the latest on the COVID situation in children, Uh, which is of course what Child USA cares the most about. So Paul Offit, you have been in the middle of the COVID battlefield. Um, And at this point, what is your just overall assessment of where we are? Have we done a pretty good job? Have we done a horrible job? We've done a a less than mediocre job. I mean, <laughs> the beginning, really. I mean, it, it's we weren't good at restricting travel from areas that were hot, like Asia and then later Europe. We weren't good at providing masks and gowns and ventilators and other personal protective equipment, so that you had nurses wearing, you know, garbage bags instead of gowns. You had them wearing bandanas instead of masks. I mean, that that was absurd. We, you know, you had states bidding for ventilators. There was just no federal program. Um, The good news was, I think that Operation Warp Speed, which was a roughly $10 billion effort to create a vaccine quickly did work. I mean, we, we, that was the fastest vaccine in history and it was using a new technology and it, the technology is remarkably safe and effective. I think we're, and, and we, you know, by uh, when the Biden administration took over, we figured out how to mass, mass produce and mass distribute and mass administer the vaccines. And we were given a million doses a day, then 2 million doses, then 3 million doses, then, then as much as almost 4 million doses a day by like March, April, and then we hit a wall because basically 80 to 90 million people in this country said, no thanks, I don't want a vaccine. And until we get people vaccinated, we are gonna have, be dealing with this virus because we're not gonna boost our way out of this pandemic and we're not gonna test our way out of this pandemic. We're only gonna vaccinate our way out of this pandemic. So, so let me just, th- this is the thing that interests me because if you get enough vaccinated from, from my layman's understanding, that means that they can't host the virus. And does that then reduce the number of mutations or why is it that the the vaccination is the key? Well, so this is a a mucosal virus. I mean, it's like influenza, respiratory syndrome virus, rotavirus, those are mucosal viruses. Mm -hmm. Where what natural infection does, if you're naturally infected with rotavirus as a child and then you're re-exposed, you're naturally infected with with influenza, for example, and then you're re-exposed. So say just that same year. 
you will have a modification of your, 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 the severity of disease. So you're protected against moderate to severe disease, but not right. asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic effects. So you can't expect that from a vaccine either. So what you get from this vaccine, remarkably, is consistent protection against severe illness. And it doesn't matter which, which variant you're looking at. The vaccines were made against the original ancestral strain, the Wuhan strain. Nonetheless, they offer excellent protection against moderate to severe disease caused by each of the four variants that have come into this country. I think the way this plays out is if you look at last year, last winter, when we didn't really have a vaccine and we right. had far fewer people who were naturally infected, nonetheless, by mid-February, you started to see a clear decline in the percentage or the number of people who were hospitalized or killed by the virus because it's a winter virus. Like flu, it's a winter virus. Like okay. RSV is a winter virus. So, so now this winter, where we have much more population immunity, probably at least 80% population immunity, you saw instead of having 4,000 deaths a day, 4,500 deaths a day around this time, you see 1,500 deaths a day, 2,000 deaths a day, which is still awful, don't get me wrong. I mean, I think we could do much better if we had a higher percentage of the population vaccinated, but it'll come down again, I think again by no later than mid-February. And then I think we are gonna start talking about it being endemic, meaning that it will be something we'll see every year, primarily in the winter, but in a, in a way that is not out, as out of control as it is now. So will we, will we every fall, will we get our flu shot and our COVID shot? No, the reason you get a flu shot every year is because that virus mutates so much from one year to the next that, that if you're, that even if you've been naturally infected or vaccinated the year before, you're not protected against severe illness. So that's not true of this virus. This virus is at least the, the, the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein that we're all immunized with, or at least 60% of the population is immunized with, um, that has uh, epitopes, immunologically distinct regions that are relatively conserved. So, so, you, so protection against serious illness, which is mediated by immunological memory cells, is likely to be long-lived. So I don't think this oh. falls into that category, no. Cool, cool. Well, so, you know, of course, we at Child USA are most worried about the kids. Um, how, how are kids doing at this point in terms of, well, getting vaccinated, not getting sick, how sick are they getting? Uh, I see there's more and more in the hospital. I don't know how to interpret that. Well, well the, the group that is least immunized are people less than 30. <coughs> when we talk about 62% of the population immunized, it's primarily the young who aren't. Um, as a general rule, children get infected less frequently, and when they're infected, they're infected less severely. That's certainly true with Omicron, where you see more upper respiratory tract infections, croup, bronchiolitis, not so much pneumonia. Um, but you know, still, this virus can cause you to ca cause children to suffer and be hospitalized and go to the ICU and occasionally die. I mean, I was on service a couple of weeks ago, and we certainly had many children in the intensive care unit with this virus. So, so, but you know, if you look at the 12 to 15 year old, 50% are vaccinated, 50% aren't. And then through the, the five to 11 year old, 30% are vaccinated, 70% aren't. I mean, when, when I was on service, we, all the kids we admitted over five, none of them were vaccinated. Their parents weren't vaccinated, their, their siblings weren't vaccinated and that's where they get it from. So until we right. wise up, up and, and vaccinate the young, we're gonna be dealing with this virus more than we have to. So what happens when parents who are unvaccinated bring an unvaccinated kid to the hospital? Does everybody go in? So, so well, first of all, we, we, if a child comes in to, 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 to the hospital, um, we, we wear masks and, and goggles and gloves and gowns pretty much every time we walk into a room for the most okay. part. Um, 
we, it's, it's actually worse than that. Where it really is bad is when we have sort of long-term um, residents in our hospital for whatever chronic heart or lung or kidney disease they have. What started to happen is you're seeing parents come in who were unvaccinated, who have COVID, who then transmit it to their child. Great. In the hospital. <laughs> in the hospital. That's a nightmare. Well, do they have a right to come in? Yeah, I don't think we mandate vaccines for parents coming into the hospital. I, I think we should. I think it would yeah. make perfect sense. I, that's a tough one. That's a tough and, and I guess there's also this fear about kids. Uh, so maybe they're not as sick, but infecting grandma or whoever else is in their universe. So we're still in that space. Although I don't think, I think when, when I talk to parents about just vaccinating their children, you, you can never make that argument. You can never make the societal argument. You're vaccinating one to protect another. Right. Parents will vaccinate their children only if they think it's protecting their children. Right, right. And, and what about vaccinating themselves to protect their child? Yeah, though that would be something you would think they would be willing to do. Although generally parents, they, 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 you'll see parents who are vaccinated themselves, but they don't vaccinate their child because they wow. see it as more dangerous than their child, even though it's not. Right, right. And what's the source of the information telling them it's dangerous for their kid? Is it, is it, is it the old or the traditional anti-vax sites on steroids? Yes. I mean, certainly the anti-vaccine folks are there. I mean, you know, the so-called National Vaccine Information Center is putting out their usual anti-vaccine tropes. There, there's, there's a new group of anti-vaccine activists that have sort of entered the fray here. The one who's the most interesting to me is a man named Robert Malone. Uh, he, he's... Um, He's sort of a brilliant scientist and researcher who really, if you look back at his career, he's a biochemist, I think, trained at the University of California. He's an MD, trained at Northwestern. Wow. He's a brilliant man. He's, he's like the modern day Andrew Wakefield, which is oh, to say, well-spoken scientist, looks the part, is able to translate science easily. And if you look at his publications from like 89, 90, he was really the first, arguably, to take mRNA, put it in a lipid droplet, show that it could enter a cell and make a protein. I mean, you could argue that um, history has largely forgotten him because people are talking now when they talk about perhaps Nobel Prizes for mRNA, it would be people like Drew Weissman, Caitlin Carrico, Barney Graham at NIH, those folks. And you don't hear his name, but you reasonably could. Nonetheless, he is a virulent anti-vaccine activist. He's on Joe Rogan. He's on Laura Ingram's show. He's out there saying that the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein is toxic to cells, and as well as all the other anti-vaccine tropes. He's, he's right in the middle of all that. So on the one hand, he claims he is the inventor of mRNA technology. And on the other hand, he tells you how dangerous it is, which makes him more um, acceptable to people because there's right. you know, this guy, he's the inventor. He would know. Right. He turned 180 degrees, so it must be deadly. That's, that's fabulous. Well, I mean, part of this universe is that they're virulent. And um, I mean, last time we spoke, uh, let's see, when we did our CNN op-ed, um, we both were hearing from some of the same folks, uh, although you many more than I. How do you, I mean, you're there fighting for children at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, University of Pennsylvania Medical School. I guess, what is your tactic? Do you just ignore these people? No, you know, you keep trying to convince them. I mean, when parents come in, they're unvaccinated, their child's unvaccinated. I do my best to convince them. It's, it's, I would say some parents are convincible. You know, they've heard a lot of bad things. They're willing to listen. I mean, you're, you're taking care of their child. I mean, they don't right. want, they want you to like them. <laughs> uh, 
and so so they'll listen. Um, and some are, but you know, some are just you. You can tell within thirty seconds that they know more than you do. They're, they they have access to information obviously you don't have, and um, so they're they're not going to get vaccinated. I, but you know, you look at somebody. See, to me, I think I think we have. Um, prematurely given up on those folks because all the talk is about booster dosing, you know, which is to say to further protect people who are already largely protected. I mean, right, right. As a thing from protecting the unprotected. And and take somebody like in Philadelphia, Dr. Ayla Stanford, you know, at, at Temple, who's one of the CNN heroes of the year, which she's finally getting the recognition she deserves. You know, she takes this so-called Black COVID co co coalition of, of 200 like-minded physicians who go into North Philadelphia, go into West Philadelphia, and and you know and and just you know shake people by the shoulders and say get vaccinated. She vaccinates four thousand people, and I think that's where it has to happen. It has to happen on the ground. I, I think mandates only get you so far. I think right. there has to be one on one with people who have influence in the community, whatever the community is: the Amish community, the evangelical community, all the ultra orthodox Jewish community. I think there has to be people on the ground who have influence in that area who can convince people. Well, I mean, this is really a fight for life and death. I mean, that's what I find. So I, I understand, um, you know, parents being concerned about peripheral, you know, influences on their children, right? There's some bad stuff out there. I'm not gonna let my kid go to that school. I'm not gonna do this. But when it's a matter of life and death, um, is it just that everybody believes or the parents believe, the community believes that it's so mild for children, it's really just a choice? But that's right. I mean, they look at, for example, statistics put out by the American Academy of Pediatrics, where you have a 0.002% chance of dying if you're a child who was infected, and that's true. I mean, it is very low risk, yeah. but I mean, how many children have died? How many people less than 18 years of age have died of this virus? About a thousand, roughly. And a third of them had no comorbidities. So that could wow. be you, right? And, yeah. and it's it's, never worth the risk. You know, the, if you talk to these parent activist groups, and you know this better than me, but you talk to the parent activist groups like Families Fighting Flu or Meningitis Angels or National Meningitis Association, these are parents who hadn't vaccinated their children against meningococcal, pneumococcal vaccine, influenza, and then their child suffers or dies from a vaccine preventable right. disease. And they all tell exactly the same story. I can't believe this happened to me until it happens to them. And then they become vigorous activists to educate about the importance of the vaccine, the dangers of the disease, because they think you know, they were put on life on this earth to do just that. And they do that to their credit. I mean, those are, it's a hard thing to do, but well, you want to become a member of a parent activist group if you can avoid it. Yeah. <laughs> so here's the thing is that, you know, to go to school, you got to take a bunch of vaccines, measles, mumps, um, and all good ideas on, on, as from where I'm coming from. And, and I'm no scientist, so don't listen to me. Um, but here's my question. Can the schools, do you think the schools will now require a COVID vaccine for the fall? Um, and it'll be one time only? No, I, I hope, I do think you, I do think children are not going to need to be continually boosted. I, I think that just if the goal, if the goal of the vaccine is protection against serious illness, then no. If the goal of the vaccine 
is to, to prevent even mild disease, which is the goal of no vaccine. Then you're talking about frequent booster dose, because even if you get a booster dose, you, that gives you about three to four months tops of protection against mild disease before your neutralizing antibodies come back down again. So it's just not a public health strategy that makes any sense. I mean, now I was just on CNN and I'm asked about like the fourth booster, you know, that Israel's now doing. It's like, you know, you're just gonna get one of those little punch cards where after the sixth booster, you get a free pizza. You feel like that, that's where we're heading. Um, so, so hopefully um, they would be, hopefully that will be true. There, I mean, is this disease serious enough to worthy prevention? Of course it is. And is it, are we gonna to need to be present, pr pr protected against this for years, if not decades to come? Of course we will. We still give a polio vaccine in this country. Why? We haven't had polio in this country since the seventies. We do it because it still exists in Pakistan and Afghanistan. And those are the well, only two countries really. And we do it because it's worked in the United States. That's right. I mean, that it's just, so, um, so what about um, the, this whole thing about masks in schools, the, the Virginia governor saying no masks in schools, um, is that kind of like, well, 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 let me just leave it at that. What about masks in schools? If I had a, a, a child, especially someone less than five, for example, who was in, in school who can't be vaccinated, the only weapon they have is, is a mask. And although it's not fun wearing a mask, children generally do pretty well with masks. They do. Yeah. I mean, the, the sort of the, the N95 is not made for their face. So, so that, that's hard to do with children. Um, the KN95 is a little easier, but again, even just the, the surgical mask, you know, right. the B-ply surgical mask does provide some protection to the degree that you social distance, social, social distance. And for anybody over five, vaccinate. And then we, we can then say we've done everything we could to get children back in school. Cause we all say we want that. Uh, we just don't do things like vaccinate. <laughs> we just tie their hands behind their back with the two weapons they have to protect them. So in other words, we don't even have to talk about masking so long as there's enough of the population that's, that has been vaccinated to reach herd immunity. Right, also you're really not talking about masking for that long. I, I do think that by mid-February, given what we saw last year, and I think what we're likely to see this year, you'll start to see a real decline. You're already starting to see that in some Northeastern cities, a decline, including this one, including Philadelphia. Is that including Philadelphia? I, I was, I saw New York mentioned, but um, well, so what, what do you think this, so we have this new anti-vax, enlarged anti-vax movement right? Um, and a lot more people tuning into it. It was really a lot of Hollywood and other before. What's the, um, what's the future for children's vaccines? Do we see that there's going to be more pushback in future? Or are we going to pop back to where we used to be? I think there's, there's, it worries me there'll be more pushback. You're starting to see people now and they realize, wait a second, we have 50 states that have school mandates um, and they're, they're arguing against the, the COVID vaccine as any sort of mandate, that they, you see a general pushback on mandates. You see that yeah. representatives like Jim Jordan and Ohio brought that up and others have brought it up too. It's this whole, it, it's interesting that the, there wasn't really a politics of the anti-vaccine movement. I mean, on the Right, it was the libertarian government off my back, don't tell me what to do. On the left, it was the sort of all things natural. I don't want to be injected with, you know, these manufacturing residuals and additives. I just want everything to be, you know, gluten free and casein free and bisphenol right. free and dolphin free. And I'm not going to vaccinate my child. So, but, and, and it was really equal. I mean, that measles outbreak um, a few years ago that started in Southern California and spread to 25 states, that really centered on a liberal sort of democratic crowd. 
Not true anymore. I mean, if you look at, at counties, you know, that are heavily Democrat versus heavily Republican, you're much more likely to die in a, in a heavily Republican county. So it's shifted. It has definitely shifted to the right. It's um, it's really quite amazing that on the right, you could have the right to life movement, which is also lending itself to people dying. I mean, the, the, the irony or the the um, sadness of that is kind of overwhelming. It's just tragic. Now, I think um, they should be more accurate to just call it sort of right to birth, you know, because once you're born, good luck. <laughs> right until birth. <laughs> <laughs> it's too much. Well, um, you know, I think that the um, the average kid, how, how's the, do you have a sense there at CHOP, how's the average kid viewing this whole COVID experience? Kids are adaptable. You know, they're, they're adaptable. They make things fun. You know, yeah. so the masks can be fun. You know, they're, they're, I think they're generally, they're, they're a much more pliable group than we are as adults. I think they, yeah. you know, clearly they have suffered the lack of socialization, the social development that comes with going to school. They have. I mean, you know this better than me. The instance of, of teen suicide is up. Um, you know, I think children are definitely losing by not going to school. That's true. Yeah. But their spirits, just generally kids' spirits are pretty fun. Well, and I mean, I was, it was funny because when we first started with the masking talk, a lot of parents are saying, my kid will never wear a mask. And, you know, the kid gets a Superman mask and puts it on and life is good. Uh, so, yeah, kids are much more adaptable. And so maybe they'll wear masks as adults for the next pandemic. Um, but that's my other, I mean, since we can only talk about negative things during COVID. Uh, so what is... Uh, What's the next pandemic going to look like? I mean, any idea where what we're defending against now? Well, I mean, we have this is our third pandemic potential virus in the last 20 years, right? You had SARS-1 in 2002, you had MERS in 2012, mm -hmm. now you have this virus. The difference between this virus and the first two is there's much more asymptomatic transmission. That's why it's much more successful than were the first two, where pretty much everybody who got those uh, diseases were sick. So it was easier to put a boat around who was mm -hmm. sick than this. Um, I think you can assume there'll be another one. I mean, this, these spillover events from animals to humans have happened, you know, it's, it's true of Ebola, it's true of a number of, of viruses that spill over. Influenza is a bird virus. So I think you can assume that will be true. You'd like to think that we'll learn our lesson here, although there's little that makes me think that's going to happen. Um, you know, we're at least that, that, you know, China, I think, is culpable for not really letting us know very early on what was happening. I mean, we shouldn't have had to have depended on a whistleblower in China to tell us that hundreds of people were dying of pneumonia from an un unknown virus. I mean, that, that, that was, that was, we were slow to learn that. And, and that would have helped. I mean, we, we did, did pretty good, actually. I mean, the virus first, at least the first identified case, at least that we know about, was somewhere in the beginning of December 2019. And we, that virus was isolated and sequenced in, in January. So that was, I think the scientific community responded well, but I think the international sort of health community has to have much better surveillance about where these things, these spillover events occur. occur. But uh, I mean, does it, does it, it continues to surprise me that you can't start a good conversation about vaccines according to the public good, right? You can't talk about, well, you know, we do things for the common good. Um, that's why, uh, you know, in some communities, you're not allowed to have a fire in your backyard. Uh, you can't burn leaves. And that's why you have to keep certain things out of the water. I mean, 
have we lost that ability altogether? Yes, I don't think we think as a society. I think we think as individuals. I mean, and that's strange. If you look, there's a wonderful film called The Polio Crusade uh, by Sarah Colt Productions out of Boston. And she, if you watch that film, you, you, you wanna cry because if you listen to those voices from back there in the 1950s, you know, you, you clearly get a societal feeling. You think my polio was bad. You should have seen what happened to Joe over here. And there was a real, I mean, look, I mean, how did we make a polio vaccine? March of Dimes it was a private philanthropic organization. That, 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 we, that was an American vaccine. We Americans paid to do the research. We paid to mass produce it. We paid to distribute it. We paid to, to, to admit it, you know, to give it free of charge to first and second graders. I mean, that's who we were. And maybe it's because we were coming off the shared national tragedy, World War II, or it was just, but I think it was just a different time. I think we're just a much more cynical, litigious, selfish society than we were before. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that we have evolved into a legal system where there is this sense of it's me um, and it's my rights and don't tell me that I have to deal with anybody else. And um, as many know, I put that at the feet of the religious liberty movement, but I'll leave that off to the side for now. Uh, but it's, uh, I think it's terrifying. I, I, out of all of this, I think the most difficult concept to take in is that it's possible for Americans to think that their individual rights always transcend what their neighbor needs, what their community needs. Um, and may, maybe the next generation is the answer, frankly. I mean, they're worried about climate change, which is a collective effort. Um, but let me, last question. Um, you know, the Supreme Court just held uh, vaccine mandates unconstitutional. OSHA was stepping over its boundaries based on federalism. Um, which frankly is just a silly argument because you can't cure a pandemic by, by regulating city by city and state by state because people travel across state lines. So that was a little rough. And then of course, um, they're also looking at the, um, uh, the military and the religious exemptions weren't being granted. So therefore all of them have to be granted. This is uh, we have a Supreme Court that's not thinking about the common good or the public good on these issues. Um, were you frustrated by the just the kind of scientific uh, IQ or the um, the medical awareness of the justices in these opinions? Yeah, no, I, you know, if you if you cut your foot on a rusty nail and you go to the doctor and they wash it out and they offer you a tetanus vaccine and you say no thanks and you get tetanus. No one's going to catch tetanus from you. Not a contagious disease. Right. When you hear arguments of civil liberties, personal freedom, bodily autonomy, this is a contagious, infectious virus. I mean, this is, is it's not a decision you're only making for yourself. Where do you think everybody catches it from? They catch it from somebody else. So, so that's not your right. It just seems to me it is not your right as an American citizen to catch and transmit a potentially fatal infection. But somehow that's the way it seems to be playing out. It's, it's to me, it's shocking because in 1905, the Supreme Court said in Jacobson, of course, of course, Massachusetts can mandate a vaccine. And now in 2021, uh, we're going to be, I mean, you can't regulate the environment with just state by state regulation. That's why we have a federal environmental policy and you can't regulate contagious diseases just by the actions of the states or local governments. But 
<laughs> we have a court that's willing to say, well, you know, it's, it's okay. Death is, is not that much of a concern. Um, so I just hope you keep fighting for what you're fighting for because uh, we need you. Oh, thank you. Can I ask you a question? The, the, I didn't understand the nature of the Supreme Court ruling because it seemed a little schizophrenic. On the one hand, they sort of struck down OSHA's ability to basically regulate safety in, in, the, in that environment, but they didn't. They still went along with sort of the Medicare, Medicaid, because that's a federal program in hospitals. So right. could you explain right. how they were thinking that about that that made sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and this has not been covered by the press. I don't think the, the world understands it. The decisions were made based on federalism. Basically, what is Congress's power? Its enumerated powers are limited under the Constitution. And OSHA uh, is, uh, like Congress, is basically uh, enforcing congressional law. And so what the court basically said, and this is not, but the court has not thought like this basically since Rehnquist and O'Connor on a regular basis. So this has been 20 years. But what the court asked was, is OSHA as a federal entity allowed to regulate vaccines at the state level and at the local level? And their answer is no. No, this is a state and local issue. You know, medical care tends to be a state and local issue in terms of regulation. And so um, and so they say, well, OSHA has overstepped its bounds, has nothing to do with religion. It really doesn't have much to do with the science. It's that we're back to a Supreme Court that says federal government can only do so much. And this is one that federal government overstepped. I just I, for me, that that is a misreading of federalism jurisprudence, because when you have effects cross uh, state borders, then you have the best argument for federal engagement. So, uh, so which means at base, they were basically saying that um, the transmissibility of this virus is irrelevant, which is an odd thing to say during Omicron, but anyway. But then the other ruling about in the federal system, the healthcare workers in the federal system, there the federal government has the power. And since they have the power, the court said that is their universe and they may do it. So, um, so what's troubling is the fact that uh, they're trying to identify arenas where every uh, advocate for the well-being in the healthcare for well-being in the healthcare system could be told, well, you now have to talk to every country, every county in the country, every state in the country, every city in the country. So you have to make a thousand, twenty thousand, a hundred thousand contacts instead of the federal government. So the efficiency of it, especially with an ongoing pandemic, is um, remarkable. Uh, and and to me, it is so counterintuitive. Uh, you know, it, I understood federalism when they were talking about there are certain things that the state government should have control over because. The federal government has plenty to do, and there are some things the states can do better. That that's okay, but pandemic, a contagious disease, it just it just doesn't make any sense. So, right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not enough that we have anti-vaxxers and we have those people who know more about science because they visit the internet. 
But we also have a Supreme Court that is now going to reemphasize the difference between the federal and state governments. So, uh, so okay, last question, Paul. Have you had COVID? No. Is that right? You're one of these people who's just not gotten it. I'm pretty careful. I mean, I'm very careful around the hospital. I, you know, I certainly, um, I've gotten two doses of vaccine and then I got a booster dose because I fall into the category that I put myself in for a booster dose, which is people over 65. Yeah. So no, I haven't gotten COVID. No. Of course, I had COVID. COVID when you just sit in front of your computer all day. That, that's probably part of it, but yeah. <laughs> that helps. That helps. Yes, I got it at an after Christmas dinner party. Um, Omicron, and I, I got the medium version. I didn't get the mild one, which was not fair. But I didn't. I wasn't in the hospital, you know, none of that stuff. See, I actually, I just don't have any friends. So finally, that's paying off. I think, <laughs> you know. No. Well, here's what I just don't understand. My husband's not gotten it. I mean, honestly, <laughs> I mean, he's been around the same people. So some, there's something wrong with my immune system, and that's a whole different podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for joining us today, right. Paul. My pleasure. Take care, Marcy. We'll be back soon. Take care. Right. Bye-bye.